So for decades, uh, Chinese people had been essentially banned, with a few very small exceptions, essentially banned from immigrating to the U.S. because of our nationality, uh, because of our background. I was raised with the story of my dad enlisting in the U.S. Army, signing up to fight for a country that just a few years before didn't want bodies like ours. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendorf, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Jeff Chu. He is the author and reporter, along with being an editor-at-large for Travel and Leisure. He's also the co-lead of Evolving Faith and teacher-in-resident at Central Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Jeff, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks, Andy, for having me. Now, for those that uh, know your work, uh, you know we've read the book, the countless articles, and all that work at Evolving Faith. When it comes to a figure like you and let's say your collaborator, Sarah Bessie, who also appeared on uh, the platform here a couple of weeks ago. Um, Y'all seem almost unreal and untouchable for folks that follow your work. So what would you want people to know about you beyond all the, the written words and the dynamic leadership? Look, I'm just a normal guy trying to not be a bad person in the world and trying to love Jesus. Jesus. Um, and I appreciate your kind words, but I don't think of myself as much of a leader. I'm not that interested in leadership at all. Um, I get it. I think there's been this veneration of leadership and on a worldly level, it makes sense 
but especially in the context of our life of faith and in the context of the church, I wish we would spend less time talking about leaders and leadership and more time talking about disciples and discipleship. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. So Jesus uses the word disciple over and over and over. And in the context of his followers, I think he only uses leader once. And in that instance, he instructs his disciples to be leaders in servitude. So I guess that's my hope that I would be constantly trying to learn how to be a better disciple and to walk alongside other folks who are trying to do the same thing. Um, that That's it, really. I mean, I, I'm a normal guy trying to do my work as well as I can. And I think Sarah would say the same, except for the guy part, maybe. <laughs> and the Canadian part. Um, There's also that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we kind of uh, ceremonially anointed her as the uh, favorite Canadian of all post-evangelicals. So Very uh, proud Canadian. Yeah, yeah. But surprisingly, she's actually a Boston Bruins fan. So connecting her nationality with her hockey team doesn't really make sense. So Full of contradictions. Yeah. <laughs> Most people who know your work might be surprised to hear that you didn't start in ministry. Um, so tell us about your sense of calling. So calling is another interesting word and concept, right? Because I think I grew up at least with this notion that we would all be like Samuel and listen for that voice in the night that tells us once and for all what our calling is. And we end up really disappointed because we don't get that. And as I've grown older, I found that calling ends up being much more of a day by day and even moment by moment thing. I started my career as a journalist at Time Magazine, uh, first on its website and then writing and reporting for the print magazine. And so storytelling is really my first love in terms of work. And in a lot of ways, I suppose that is what I still do, whether it's exploring scripture with folks or writing essays or reporting for travel and leisure. It's interesting to me that you'll use the term ministry. I grew up Southern Baptist, but I'm now a member of a congregation of the Reformed Church in America. And there's this really beautiful nugget in our book of church order, which is probably something nobody ever thought would exist as a sentence. But anyway, it talks about the equality of ministry. And it says, every member is called with the whole church to embody Christ's intentions for the world. In other words, even though some people might be elders and some people might be deacons and some people might have this grand title, minister of word and sacrament, so sacrament, we're all actually ministers. And I appreciate that because we're all called to minister to a world that is aching and hurting and trying to find hope. We're all called to do part of this work, whatever our gifts are. Whether your ministry is expressed through biscuits and cupcakes, or your ministry is expressed through hugs and notes of encouragement, or your ministry is embodied in the pulpit. I really resist those hierarchies. Um, so some days I'm called to be a good husband. Other days I am called to be a good friend. Um, many days I'm called to be a faithful writer, and most days it would be moments of all of these things, right? So I don't want folks to think that ministry and calling are these unfathomable concepts that are so beyond them. I think it's 
part of all of our lives if we stop and think about it slightly differently. Well, two things for that. One is, you know, thank you for the next hour. Uh, all I'm going to crave is is biscuits and muffins. Uh, thinking about pastries, if that's somebody's gift uh, to to the church. To uh, minister to Andy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and most of the pastry shops around here close at one, which is not going to help by the time we finish this recording. So, uh, <laughs> the 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 second thing, you know, to but to a certain extent, you, you've had this um, the shift in. The expression of your uh, vocational outlet, if if you will. Um, so, you know, who were the people? What were the circumstances that helped clarify or open the door, for like a better metaphor, uh, to to this new uh, aspect of fulfilling your uh, vocational giftedness? So, I still see myself as a writer first and foremost. If you hear me preach, uh, and I've only been preaching for for a few years, I started preaching in two thousand sixteen my sermons are really written works first. Yeah, I write them so that they can be heard because a sermon is meant to be heard. So it's different than writing an essay that I would want a reader to experience uh, visually, right? But the folks who helped me clarify my calling, it was my second and third grade teacher, Carmen Gonzalez, who had us publish books when we were eight years old. We had to workshop our story with a group of other students we had to type it out and print it out and draw the illustrations and even choose the fabric for the binding. My story was about my teddy bear. But when I look back at that, she helped us see how a story isn't just words on a page. It's the physical experience of what you are encountering when you look at pictures or when you hold something in your hands. And then when I was in college, I took one journalism class in my four years, and that professor, Charlotte Grimes, uh, she was taking a sabbatical from her work in the Washington Bureau at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and she was the one who suggested I might consider reporting as a career. She was the one who identified that I might have some skill at asking questions. And that's a key part, I think, of all of my work is asking questions. I would never have ended up becoming a writer or a storyteller or a reporter, or even doing the kind of work in quote unquote ministry that I'm doing now, if it wasn't for them. Uh, I didn't go to seminary until I was well into my thirties. And I think a lot of the blame falls on my pastor in Brooklyn, um, the Reverend Dr. Daniel Meter. So it had been a long time dream of his to uh, resuscitate the catechumenate in our congregation, which is this ancient practice of study for weeks and weeks and weeks that leads up to a public recommitment to Christ, or in the case of one of my fellow catechumens who had never been baptized, it led to his baptism on Easter Eve. And the first year that Pastor Meter did it at my church in Brooklyn, he asked me to be part of it because I was an elder at the time and he needed an elder in the group. So I said yes, more out of duty than any sense of really wanting to commit hours on Sunday afternoons to this. But something opened up in me over those weeks of studying scripture among friends. So I think that was the beginning of my call to seminary. And my friend Jabe, who was the catechumen who was baptized on Easter Eve, he ended up going to seminary at the same time that I did. So something about that gathering, that walking with folks through the stories of scripture, through long spiritual conversations was really integral to this calling, I guess, or that part of the calling. Well, you certainly um, 
are gifted in, in a number of areas and, and writing is, is one of those. And you wrote a book in, in 2014 entitled, Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian Pilgrimage in Search of God in America. Um, at the time you wrote it, you know, what was your goal? And, and did you anticipate that it would resonate with so many people? So I have to be honest, my goal was pretty selfish. Um, I started reporting the book in 2010. And at that time, I was really struggling with my sense of belonging in the church. I wasn't going to church most Sundays. I didn't feel like I had a place as someone who identifies as gay in the church I grew up in, certainly, but even much of the church beyond that. As a reporter, pretty much the main way I know how to process anything in my life is by gathering information and asking questions and getting other people's stories. So that's what I decided to do. I decided to spend a year collecting stories. And I really wanted to understand the diversity of how people who claim to be Christians have reconciled or not their understanding of God and faith and scripture with their understanding of sexuality. Why was it that so many folks who call themselves Christian actually disagree deeply on this? And how is it that they settled on their position or reached the place that they're at in their understanding of sexuality? Honestly, I didn't have a great sense of who the book might resonate with. Yes, that's something I left up to the marketers and to the market. Uh, my goal was really for me. And it's been wonderful to see that it's been helpful to other people. But I have to be honest and say that I wasn't trying to help other people at the time. You know, in the years after it's, it's released, um, because so many people have resonated with it, you, you've become a, a pastor and a voice for many in the Christian LGBTQ community, as well as those who are uh, reforming their theological openness to inclusiveness. Uh, for many, their faith tradition has come a long way in inclusiveness and equality for all expressions of humanity, and yet there is still a long way to go. What are your words of wisdom for those that are frustrated within their faith tradition's lack of progress in the LGBTQ conversation? So this is a pattern when folks talk to me, right, I, I'm always kind of questioning the question, right? I shy away from the term pastor. I'm not ordained because of my sexuality and the fact that the RCA is still wrestling with that. And I know that might seem pretty rigid for a lot of people, but it matters to me. I'm not an ordained minister. I do try to be pastoral in the sense that, as I said earlier, I try to come alongside people and be a companion to them when and if I feel the capacity to do so. I also try to have a lot of empathy for my 16-year-old self, someone who was not inclusive, not affirming, and pretty conservative in a lot of his views. So often I'll think, how would I want to treat that 16-year-old me? And I hope it wouldn't be with shame or with harshness. I hope it would be with good questions and patient listening and some grace. I'm also not super comfortable with linear thinking and with this idea that there's this one journey, this one path along which we're all progressing because I think the problem with that is it can trick some of us into thinking we're farther along than others. And I really worry about this false sense of superiority there. 
obviously there's been a ton of change in the church over the years. Many more denominations and congregations now celebrate women, for instance, equally, right? And some more denominations and congregations now celebrate LGBTQ people equally. We're still in the midst of struggle in my denomination, asking really hard questions about what it means to be the people of God together and whether we can even do it together. And I guess what I would urge folks to remember is that this isn't theoretical. It grieves me so much because it's not just ideas. It's about real human beings. It's about that queer kid growing up in the pews, wondering whether there's a place for them, asking in the depths of their soul whether they can belong to God as well as to a family of faith. It's about spiritual lives, which is to say both body and soul, which I think are inseparable. And so I guess my hope is that our desire to love well would honor those spiritual lives and make home for them. And that is a constant and ongoing work for all of us, even for those of us who say that we're already inclusive. Honestly, some of the least inclusive and welcoming churches I've visited are the ones with rainbow flags flying out front. All of us can spend more time examining what it means to be inclusive, what it means to be welcoming, what it means to love in an active and not just a theoretical way. I guess I'm thinking in particularly at this moment about folks who are struggling to know whether to stay in their faith tradition or not. Because uh, you mentioned those who are frustrated with lack of progress. It's not for me to tell anyone to stay in a church or in a tradition that's not inclusive. I really think each individual, each family has to make that call for themselves. I think some of us are called to be a different voice in those spaces, while some of us need to go elsewhere and serve elsewhere and flourish elsewhere. For those who are called to stay, I think listening is a big part of how to create healthy dialogue. American culture in general is not a listening culture. There's a lot of talking. I don't think our strength is listening. But I don't really believe that we're going to shame people into changing their views of scripture or God or any of this. Patient conversation and showing up again and again and loving folks, I think those are the keys. This is about relationship. And those who are capable of staying, especially queer folks, have a particular power to tell their stories just by their very presence. By showing up, you are already offering a powerful testimony. You're forcing people to reckon with a real human being, not just this idea of queerness or this notion of homosexuality. They have to deal with you, the skin and the bones and the muscle and the heart, not just the idea of you. But it takes a ton of patience and it takes the resolve of knowing that what matters most isn't ultimately the approval of, of people or the affection of people, but the love of God. That honestly is the only thing that will sustain you given the challenge. And that is the only thing that will give you the wisdom and the courage to know when to speak and when not to and provide the fortitude that it takes to navigate these kinds of waters. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. What will ministry at your church look like as we exit the pandemic? Where do you see new opportunities and insights needed? What are the pressure points that need support? BSK 
the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky invites you to take a short survey where you can share your insights. You'll also be entered to win a $100 gift certificate to an online Black-owned bookstore. Help us out and take the survey today at bsk.edu backslash pathways. That's bsk.edu backslash pathways. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. We had your co-lead uh, at Evolving Faith, Sarah Bessie, on the podcast in February, and we learned about the formation of this movement um, out of the shared vision that Rachel um, Held Evans and Sarah had. <clears throat> you joined Evolving Faith shortly after its conception. So what inspired you to be part of this movement? Is it a movement? I mean, <laughs> I would say we're just trying to gather people once in a while to give them a bit of encouragement. And we just want the church to be what it was called to be. So I was a speaker at the first Evolving Faith because Rachel asked me to be there. And I learned pretty early in my friendship with Rachel that it's hard to say no to her because she was very stubborn. The vision that was presented to me of Evolving Faith acknowledges that as we learn and as we grow, our faith changes and our relationship with God changes. And for many of us, that process of change has been a difficult and at times frightening, but ultimately worthwhile thing. And when Rachel asked if I would be part of the leadership team, I think it was in part an acknowledgement, growth on her part and Sarah's part, an acknowledgement that a gathering that dug into issues of justice and welcome couldn't be led just by straight white people. But at the same time, she also emphasized to me that they weren't asking me to be a part of this just because of my ethnicity or just because of my sexuality. One thing I love about our gathering is that it asks big questions about what it means to be a whole and beloved child of God. So yes, the ethnicity, yes, the sexuality, but every single part of us. Um, the things that hurt us, the things that make us happy, the tiniest things that bring us delight, the life events that give us sorrow. We have to ask big questions about these and we don't all necessarily have the same answers to those questions, but that's okay. We just need more spaces in which we can ask the hard and frightening and tough questions. And unfortunately, Evolving faith exists because the church on the whole has not been that place. It's pretty cliche for folks who are leading organizations or nonprofits or whatever to say that their ultimate goal is to be out of business. But honestly, I dream of a world that doesn't need evolving faith because the church is a place that welcomes that kind of questioning. Well, Sarah, 
when she was on the podcast said that you are the pastor of the movement. And I've already heard you say that you don't want to identify as a pastor. So talk to us about your role within Evolving Faith. So I'm going to have to have a word with her about that. <laughs> see what's going on in her heart that uh, she decided to torment me in that way. But when we were divvying up the roles for this last gathering, we decided that she would do communications and I would be in charge of spiritual formation and pastoral care. Mainly that means I work with our moderators in our social media groups and our chaplaincy team. And I also design the part of the conference that has to do with worship. And one of the reasons she had me do that is I, I have a lot more, I guess, because I come from a higher church tradition than she does since she's Pentecostal and charismatic, I have a lot more opinions about how the worship part should go. And she's like, I can't deal with this. You, you have to deal with your own uh, problems. So, um, but to return to something that I said earlier, we're all called to be pastoral, right? So it's part of the call of every Christian, even if it's embodied in different ways, depending on your different gifts. And a big part of the pastoral work of evolving faith is reminding people of that. Um, it's reminding people that whatever pastoral means for us, it's a way in which we can try to be Christ-like because Christ was both prophet and priest. He exercised both those functions. Honestly, on a, on a real world level, I wouldn't say that my role is significantly different from Sarah's. We both try to come alongside folks, whether it's through the gathering itself or the podcast or on social media. We try to meet them where they are in their relationship with God and with the world. And we try to walk alongside them for a little while. We're not a church. We are not a denomination. Folks have asked us to plant churches and we have no intention ever to do that. We have no intention of replacing anyone's church. We just want the church to be what it could be if it were focused on God's love. Let's switch gears. Um, you're the child of a of Chinese immigrants uh, from Hong Kong. Um, when we're recording this, we're just weeks removed from an appalling act against Asian Americans in Atlanta. And unfortunately, these shootings are one of many anti-Asian acts across America since the start of this pandemic. At the same time, one does not have to look all that hard to discover just how much anti-Asian sentiment has existed across America for centuries. How did you uh, experience this growing up? Um, I guess walk us through the story of how... Um, this was part of your upbringing, part of your experience. So my dad immigrated to U.S. in 1967, which was just a couple of years after uh, the lifting of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So for decades, uh, Chinese people had been essentially banned with a few very small exceptions, essentially banned from immigrating to the US because of our nationality, uh, because of our background. I was raised with the story of my dad enlisting in the US Army and signing up to fight for a country that just a few years before didn't want bodies like ours. For the first few years of my childhood, I grew up in Northern California. So that is a part of the country with a lot of Asian folks and racism wasn't so much of an overt thing. But once we left California for my dad's job, that's when I started to realize how different I was. Uh, fourth and fifth grade were the beginning of a really tough time. I was bullied 
one kid in particular made fun of my eyes and my hair and my skin color. Uh, other kids made fun of my lunches because my mom, she honestly made what I would now consider to be really good lunches. And it's a pretty common immigrant kid's story to have those lunchroom moments where kids wrinkle up their noses and ask, what's that? So I wouldn't say it was anything out of what's sadly ordinary for a lot of people, but young people can be really cruel about difference. I hope that's slowly changing, but that was my experience. And some of it, you know, they would say, they would claim it was innocent stereotyping. If you're Chinese, you must be good at math. I was okay at math, but I was actually much better at English. What was more shocking to me was when I got older and realized the ways in which subtle racism would thrive even in places where you wouldn't expect. So we have the stereotype, for instance, of the liberal media. You often hear about the mainstream media with all its liberal biases, right? But I had an editor who was reading my writing and asked if English was my second language. Well, it turns out it was my second language. I was born in California, but I learned Cantonese at home before I learned English at school. But the editor thought that my wordplay was either an accident or evidence that I didn't know English that well and had stumbled into a different rhythm with my sentences. Would that editor have asked a white person that? I don't think so. For non-Asian Americans, um, and you just shared uh, stories that, you know, I cannot resonate with at all because I've not experienced that as a person who grew up white, middle-class, you know, male. Um, what would shock people the most uh, about the discrimination that, that many Asian Americans face every single day? Honestly, in 2021, I don't think anything should shock anyone at this point. Not after the last few years that we've been through in the US. I guess I'm not interested in people being shocked so much as I am in getting them to empathize, to, in getting them to understand the debilitating effects of being seen as less than, of being constantly pushed to the sides of a room or uh, being told your voice isn't welcome. Um, so another example from my quote unquote liberal media days working in New York City. Um, when I was at a magazine in New York, there were two of us who were at this particular editor level and my colleague who's a straight white man who I love dearly, great storyteller. He definitely comes across in a more vulgar way than I do, uh, especially in meetings. And so one day uh, I remember this meeting where he, there were actually multiple meetings, but he would say to the editor in chief, that's an effing stupid idea, except he didn't say effing. And then I would critique the editor-in-chief. And at this particular meeting, I asked some questions, explained why I didn't think it was a good idea. And after the meeting, I got called into his office and he told me it was humiliating for him to be questioned by me in public and said never to question him publicly or disagree with him publicly again, that I was only ever to do so privately. I went to my straight white colleague who was known for saying to our boss's face, that's an effing stupid idea and asked him if anything had ever been made of that. And he said, no. 
this is the kind of thing that happens. We're not allowed the same voice that other folks are. And that's just a reality that we've had to deal with for much of our lives. What do we do about that? Um, I have a lot more to say about what the church can do than, than the rest of the world. I guess I have high hopes, but really low expectations for the rest of the world. Uh, the church, on the other hand, I think, has been given a particular responsibility. And it's especially uh, grief-inducing to me to see that the church has not stepped up when it should. There is a, a reckoning underway for many white faith traditions for its complicity and in, in racism against the Black community that spans centuries. And yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of dialogue about the church's role in racism and discrimination against the vast Asian community. Um, are you able to give us some insight into kind of the, the history as far as uh, the church's racism to this particular um, group of folks? And then, then we'll get to the aspects of how the church can, can respond um, now. Honestly, I think <laughs> the white church, especially the white evangelical church, doesn't really know what to do with difference. Um, Look, I, my family was converted by Southern Baptist missionaries who felt called to go across the ocean and give their lives to the cause of civilizing heathens. So there's this tension for me personally between the fact that we were invited into a faith that has become very important for my family and for me at the same time as we were seen as less than. And I don't think the church has ever repented of seeing folks in other lands as less than, as people to be civilized, as uh, souls to be conquered for Christ. And I don't think most of the church is educated enough about the remarkable diversity of what it means to be Asian. The church started in Asia. The church did not start in America. What we now call Israel is on the continent of Asia. That is part of Asia. That is part of Asian heritage. India, where the apostle Thomas traveled shortly after Jesus died, that church, those Christians in Southern India have a much longer history of the faith, an unbroken line that traces it self all the way back to apostolic times. And a lot of those folks are your neighbors in Texas or uh, other parts of the US. There was Christianity in China in the seventh century. Um, there's even some documentation that claims that after Thomas went to India, he went to China and he started mission work there. So part of it is I think this tendency among Americans to think um, America is exceptional. America is uniquely blessed by God. America is at the top of the pile and is the light of the world. And there is no biblical grounding for that at all. I think part of the reason the church hasn't reckoned with its role in racism and discrimination against Asians is because it's just uneducated.
What should the church's role be um, right now in this conversation? Repentance. It goes back to what I said earlier about listening. Uh, I want to say, too, that it should be a priority to make reparations for what has been done to the Black community. Um, there has been incredible anti-Blackness, not just in the white church and in white America, but also in many Asian communities. And uh, we have to repent of that. I want my Asian siblings to come alongside our Black siblings in solidarity because we are stronger together and we belong together. And the only way that we're gonna achieve equity and justice is together. And I guess the church has to repent of the reality that racism, colonialism, imperialism, these have all been woven into the story of the church in the modern world. This is part of the church's legacy and its history. And that's especially true of the white evangelical church. I don't know if, I'm sure there are folks in the CBF who are comfortable with the label evangelical and there are folks who will shy from it. Uh, white evangelicalism has had a particularly difficult time reckoning with the history of racism and discrimination. And look, nobody wants to feel like, oh, we did something bad. But when the costs of what has been done by the church have accumulated over time and are still hurting people, doesn't the call to love your neighbor mean reckoning with some of those things? Listening to the testimonies of how folks have suffered and giving the hurting a chance to say, this is what would help. This is what might start to make amends. This is what would feel like love to us. I think that would be a great place to start. Bowen Yang, who's um, one of the head writers at SNL, um, gave a very uh, poignant and powerful uh, speech this last weekend uh, about you know this cultural um, surface level response to supporting uh, their Asian American neighbors. Um, you know, for those listening, um, what, what can they do right now to be a part of stamping the tide of anti-Asian sentiment in this country beyond just the surface level things that people just want to, you know, just read on social media, those, you know, top five lists of things that are just easy to regurgitate. One of the tough things I think is that we're all looking for those quick solutions and those silver bullets to these systemic problems. And I don't have a quick and easy answer for you. All I can say is to go back to what Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Be a friend, cultivate relationships with those who aren't like you. Sure, it's fine to ask us about our food if you wanna know about our food, but there's more to us than our food engage with our lives, ask about our kids and our spouses, be the friend that you would want. And don't just reach out in a moment of crisis to say, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to your community. Like be my community. Don't make me the other. Find the folks in your, your life who you might encounter in a casual way and get to know them. I think that we're all, as creatures of community, we're all seeking to be known and to love and be loved. And it's hard when you feel set apart, when folks single you out only in moments of pain and sorrow. 
So yeah, that's all I can say is be a good neighbor. Last question. Um, you've got your hands in a lot of different uh, pots, doing a lot of different amazing things. So what do you have coming up that you'd want folks to be aware of? Look, I can barely get through the day. So I don't want anyone to have some illusion of this grand scheme or strategy that I've figured things out. Um, I am trying to plant seeds for this growing season. I'm trying to be faithful in writing my newsletter on Substack, which I would be happy for anyone to subscribe to if they would like to. It's jeffchu.substack.com and it's free. I write a letter to folks every week, um, Thursdays if I can pull it off, but sometimes I can't. Um, and honestly, beyond that, I'm just trying to be faithful to the calls that come on any given day. So some weeks that might be guest preaching in a con congregation. Uh, earlier today was fact checking a story for travel and leisure. I honestly can't make sense of my work. There's not a lot of rhyme or reason to it other than I'm trying to tell good and hopeful stories. So that's all I got. Well, as a subscriber of Travel and Leisure, I want to thank you for your services there uh, as well. Um, so I, I, I get you on multiple fronts, Evolving Faith, uh, your writing, your editing. So uh, I know that there's others that also resonate with your uh, myriad of ways that you express your gifts. Uh, so we're thankful for it. Well, if you want to stay connected with Jeff, um, as he said, you can check out his work uh, by jeffchu.com. Of course, you can check out uh, his work at evolvingfaith.com and follow him on social media. Uh, Jeff, thank you for your extraordinary leadership. And though it might be a hesitant pastoral leadership, thank you for pastoring a movement of people to evolve their faith into something beautiful and more faithful to Jesus' way. Thanks a lot, Andy. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.